You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Heather Long, an economic columnist and member of the Post editorial board. Today, I'm honored to be joined by the former chair and CEO of IBM, Jenny Rometty. Her new book, Good Power, has just come out. It's a really great read full of fascinating insights about her life and incredible story. And really, it's a book about how to lead in uncertain times that we're living through. Welcome back to Washington Post Live, Jenny. Good to see you. Uh, Thank you, Heather. It uh, it is really good to be back with you again. Thank you. So let's start with the obvious one. Why write this book now? What really got under your skin to do this today? It's a great question because I honestly did not intend to write a book. Everyone who knows me knows that. And as I was stepping down, a lot of people urged me to tell my story. In your introduction, you had some of the learnings that flashed across, but it's the background of what led to those. So how does a kid whose father abandons them and leaves them with no money and on food stamps end up where I ended up? And at first I didn't want to, I have to honestly did not want to. And I really remembered what many people have said to me and what I've noticed in the world, which is, you know, people need to understand role models because you cannot be what you cannot see. And so I spent a lot of time and got comfortable that, okay, could I be authentic and vulnerable enough to write a book like this so that it wasn't my memoir, but it was really about some lessons. And um, and that's what took me to it. So it's been the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, second to running IBM, the hardest thing I've ever done. And I'm just hopeful it helps some people. Yes. So we're sitting here in Washington. And usually when people write a book, it's because they are eyeing potential running for office. Uh, do you have any aspirations for political office? No, I have aspirations to do what I'm doing now, which is uh, really working on creating better jobs for more people. That's how you and I, I think, met on our last uh, Zoom together, uh, the work that I do in 110, which is about creating a million jobs for Black Americans who do not yet have a four-year college degree. And it really deals with the over-credentialing of work in this country, of good jobs, and working away at those systemic barriers that uh, really help all underrepresented groups uh, find their way to a really great economic future. I'm eager to talk more about that, but let me ask you one more, since I am sitting here in Washington and you have just written a book called Good Power. Uh, Obviously, this is a time of a lot of uncertainty. A lot of people are looking at Congress and the political system broadly in the United States and just feeling like it's very dysfunctional, that it's very far from maybe what they consider good power. Uh, You know, broadly, what would your message be to lawmakers based on what you've thought about and written about? Yeah, it, it is, I think, a timely message, even though I started writing it a couple of years ago. And my message about good power is because I think most people have a pretty negative connotation of power when they think of people in it or situations. And the irony is when you talk to many young people and say, you know, wouldn't you like to be powerful? They'll say, no, I'd like to really do and change things. And the irony is irony is you need power to do that. And so I want people to take away my view is how you do things matters just as much as what you do. And that good power, if I had to like just put it in a tagline, is about someone who runs toward tension and, and really, though, 
tries to find and unite a way through it, not divide. And then they do it with respect, not through fear. And I believe it's really important to celebrate small steps of progress towards something big, because if all we do is sort of stake out the two polar sides of something, you do get polarization. So it is the idea of tension, respect, and in the end of the day, celebrating um, you know, progress. And I do think right now in this moment, it is timely. It is the kind of leadership I know I would like to work for and work with. And I think it can, and that's what I tried to do in the book was show, you know, it expands over time. You learn more and your scope expands and eventually you can make a difference to big societal problems. And just like what we started our conversation on. Yeah. One of those big problems that you've really been at the forefront of working on is how to help Americans without college degrees. I love this term that you had coined a few years ago, the new collar jobs. And at your when you were leading IBM, you know, I wrote about some of this. You really you created pathways, including a program that I loved called P-Tech that you can yep. probably say more about, but it, you know, it really created pathways for students coming right out of high school to both earn some associate's degree type credentials and you know, have a pathway to even a white collar job in the tech industry. Um, can you say more about, do we just really in this country need to rethink education after high school? Yeah, I, I do think we do. And and I'll start with, though, to be the first one to say, I also am a vice chair at a university. So it is not that I don't believe in a college degree for, for many people. But just to where you started, I also believe in just facing the reality of the facts today. And I remember when I first got into this topic well over a decade ago, Heather, when you mentioned the term new collar, it was when I was worried. I was hiring cyber people and there was no one out there. And I was very worried that the tech was being celebrated on the west side of our country and on the east coast, but the middle was left behind, that digital divide thought. And I'm like, this isn't a good future if everybody thinks you know, their future with tech is not going to be good for them. And that was serendipity that we found one of these, we were working with a school, one school that is what you referenced, a pathway to technology school, a high school, working with a community college, think of it as a six-year program, you get your high school degree and associate in parallel. It was in the corporate social responsibility group. So just serendipity, I walked in, did a review, and I went, hmm, maybe there's something here. And today, there are now 300 of these high schools around the world in 28 countries. Uh, you know, States like New York, Texas have very large numbers of them. And what it proved to me is what my mom taught me, access, aptitude, exactly two different things in that where each of us starts like my mom no education should not determine where we have to end and so when you consider 65 percent of americans and 80 percent of black americans don't have a college degree I, I, that was my first startling fact to really believe that put that aside and the second is what i then learned over the next decade would be how many of us have over credentialed really good jobs, middle-class, family-sustaining jobs, because it just got easy to say, click, need a college degree, when to get started, you don't. And so it's probably mm, maybe 85% of jobs I now, with the work I do, see it or require the college degree. Maybe half of that's over-credentialed. So you could just see what a big difference it could make to so many people and you know, this decade has taught me, we've studied a lot of the performance 
And the employees that we brought in, originally called new collar, meaning not blue collar, not white collar, um, that is how the new collar came about, just to have not a bad stigma with this. They're performing equal to those with a college degree. They're thirstier for education. They take more education. They're more loyal, more retentive. And so this isn't just altruistic. It is about, I think, you know, great for the company, a more diverse workforce, and great for society. So does that require a rethink of our education system? I, I think it does, but not like I talk about in the book, know what should change and what should endure. There's a lot of great things about the education system, but there are many incremental improvements we could make that would make a huge difference. Yeah. And, uh, you know, part of what you did at IBM, I think, has influenced a lot of states to now open up many of their jobs, including the state of Maryland, to folks without college degrees, really waiving that requirement to look at more candidates. Um, yeah, I worked I, with I'm Secretary Rondo when she was doing that. She was a great, when she was back as governor there, a great example. That's one of the states, another one. Yeah, from Rhode Island and her time as yep. governor of Rhode Island. Um, I, I'm so glad you brought up your mom. It's a huge part of your book. You know, really, really an American story in some ways. Your mom has four kids. Your dad leaves when she's around in her early 30s. And she's got to transform her life suddenly. And can you say how this experience shaped you and shaped your views on leadership? Yeah, it, it did. And I have to say, I come from strong women, like so many people probably watching here. My great grandma uh, was the last person in her family alive as she came to this country from Belarus. She suffered a tragedy. My grandmother was a widow two times over at age 47 and had to make a living making lampshades. And then my mom, you say, what did I learn? What I watched here was a, my mom, like maybe many others, she had a high school degree, but not a college degree, no college education, never worked. So that idea that I said earlier about what I watched was she took a little bit of education, did well, could get a you know reasonable job, hourly job, nighttime, a little more, a little better job, et cetera. And you had it as a quote at the beginning of this Zoom. What I really took away was three things. One, be fiercely independent. And so this idea that I would never have to depend on someone, like my mom had depended on my dad, I, I would be able to always take care of myself. And that's a very freeing thought on, on International Women's Day in particular to say, meaning if I, if I married, it would be just for love and because I wanted to marry. It would never be because I needed something. And uh, I'm married 43, day, 43 years this month, actually. Um, and then the second thing was this point that my mom was so determined that no one would define who she was. Is, is the quote said in that she's like i'm not going to be known as a divorcee or someone on on food stamps and she was just so she never said it honestly she never said it to the four of us and my three brothers and sisters are equal if not more successful and we just watched what she did and then that point about access and aptitude and, and my grandma's all told us hey hard work is how you get out of stuff you work hard and eventually things get a little bit better and I must say that is probably a big streak inside of all of us as a result of those strong women. I like that. Um, you know, your story really speaks to resilience and perseverance and the story of your mother and your grandmother as you've shared in the book and just now. Um, but as you say, we are sitting here on International Women's Day and there are still a lot of barriers in the United States, not just around the world. Uh, to women making it higher and higher in the corporate sphere or really in the governance sphere, any aspect of life. 
And, I, you know, I'm wondering what you think are still the biggest barriers that you see. Yeah, you know, if I, if I, if I only had to pick one, if you said, Jin, just pick one, the one I would pick is that we've got to retain women in the workforce. And yeah. this is, to me, in some ways, it's a math problem. Let, let's assume we all believe, or that I can assume everyone authentically believes it is best to have a very diverse, inclusive workforce. Let's, because if you don't, that's another discussion we have to have. I really believe that, right? And that is best for business, best for the products, society, et cetera. So, okay, believe that. You know, a lot of companies hire 50-50 or almost. I was just with a group this morning. It is about 50-50. By the time they reach into more senior ranks, middle management up, now we're down to, you probably lost 20 points of the women. And so then a little more, you've lost 30 points. And that's why I said if I could work on one problem and it's not a silver bullet, I worked on retaining or bringing back women into the workforce. Mm -hmm. um, I just saw a survey, I think it was McKinsey that did it, that for every two director level women who leave, one is only promoted. So that's not a good you know, directional statistic. And when I say, what do you do to retain women? It is a million things. Number one is flexibility because, and not that all the men listening, that men don't help raise children or have family issues. Traditionally, we'll see many women step out to do these things. And so either you've got to make it easier to come back when I was CEO, we did things, everything from extending maternity leave, shipping breast milk for those who wanted it, who wanted to come back a bit earlier while they were still breastfeeding. Um, we would look at returnships, meaning, okay, some left and then they're like, oh, I'm not confident to come back. Uh, the world's passed me by. And so we set up something, said, hey, three months, stay as long or as little as you like until you feel like you've gotten your skills back. Many would be there a very short time and go, you're right, I actually did not, I know a lot of stuff and would come back. And I say, it's like a million of these things. You keep raising the bar on yourself to say, what can I do to make them either stay um, or if when they do leave, come back. And that to me is the number one thing that we could do right now. You know, in addition to, I know people like me feel very strongly, uh, all my colleagues at this point in their life, those of us that were CEOs, whether it's Ingenui, Ellen Coleman, the group, the, the way to pay it forward is as well, to really sponsor women. And, um, you know, because at this point, you do know a lot of people and can help a lot of people. But that retention point, keep them in the workforce or get them back fast, to me, would make the biggest difference. Yeah, it's really startling some of those statistics you were just sharing around retention. Uh, another one that you and I talked about is just the need to, for many companies, to explicitly set some sort of target that, right oh, or wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is a point where I always say, if someone talks to me about this kind of in the general, I always go, hey, three things. You got to be authentic to believe this. And you would be surprised how many people like think, well, I'm doing it because I should do it versus no, no, no. This is like about being a good company. The second thing we just went through like a million activities, you know, but the third is what you just said, really, Heather, is hold yourself accountable. And it's not just with, you know, whether targets or goals. I also think it's, you know, hold yourself accountable every year. Audit pay is pay, you know, equivalent for the same roles, that kind of thing. Because I've had many say, you know, yes, I want to do all this, but oh, I don't want to audit that pay. I'm like, well, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. Right. I mean, it's put your words where your mouth is kind of thing. And um, I think if you do those things and I think targets, the biggest thing on targets, it isn't actually the number I always say. And on the boards I'm on, the point is, can everyone make progress? 
like when we did our executive comp, you had to improve. If you were taking away, I would use a stick, not a carrot, you know, and if you were actually making us move forward, there'd be a carrot. But if for too long, what you were doing was degrading our progress, we'd stop hiring, hit impact bonuses. So it is all about, and any of these things, keep making progress is the way you get there. Back to celebrate progress, not perfection yet. Yeah, I like what you said, that it has to impact the bonus or the review. There has to be something. I I believe strongly in that. Yeah. 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 Um, So you wrote a really powerful essay as well this week in in Fortune. I encourage everyone to read it. It's entitled, That's Not Right, former IBM CEO Ginny Rometty on how she protected trans workers after 2016. It opens with a very powerful story of how when you were CEO, one of your workers wrote to you an email. They were very concerned about the legislation in North Carolina that essentially made it very difficult for trans Americans to use the restroom that they wanted to use. And you talk about how you and some other CEOs really made a big effort to stop other states, especially Texas, from going down this route as well. Uh, you know, we're at a moment where we're unfortunately once again seeing a lot of pushback against trans rights. And do you think CEOs have to speak out about this? Look, what I think each one of us, each CEO needs to do is decide what the issues are that are aligned with what they think is most important um, because you can't speak out on everything. So I very consciously uh, talked to the team and the whole company about, to me, there were three. Anything that impacted our trust with clients and with society at large, The second was everything around inclusion, because I want people to be, if you can be yourself, I feel that at work. When I can be myself, I do better work. So that they feel comfortable to bring their real selves to work. And then the third thing was about everything we could do to prepare society to really view technology as something to enhance and make their life better and look forward to this next era, particularly around AI, data in the world. And that's why you talked about things like the p-tech schools and the skills work that i do so i need to say that framework because to me it was one of the three things and i think like an important lesson i learned from history of how ibm had always dealt with many issues was i always thought about what i care about is policy not politics and i always felt that put me on the right side of issues and actually able to talk to people on both sides because it was an issue I was trying to address. In mm. that particular one, when I had a number of workers, and we were one of the very largest employers, uh, as an example, in Texas, that they said, I'm not comfortable then. You know, I, I am not comfortable. It really did come down. I had to pick it as an issue to make a stand on because there's always a, a kind of a long train behind these kinds of things. And that is why I did it. So I think today, I actually think it's even harder today. I hear that from many of my colleagues still. And I'm with, I was with a group of 30 over the weekend. But people are as focused. They may not be as vocal. But I honestly, it wasn't so much about what I said. It was more what we did. And I think that's an important piece of how to get change to happen in our political environment. It was to go talk to a lot of people. Go show them the people we're talking about, what the issues are. Um, I did that work on the Dreamers, too. And that's real ground you know, sort of ground battle that you have to go do. It's not what you tweet. 
it's more, you know, really going out and trying to convince people the merits of why your argument's not only right for you, it's right for them too. And uh, in the end, I was happy to not see those bills pass. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that it seems to be even harder to speak out now. It does seem that way. I'm sure many CEOs have been watching the Disney situation, for instance, in Florida, when Disney tried to speak up against some very seemingly basic LGBTQ rights and then face backlash. Uh, does that come up in conversations that people, CEOs, are more fearful now? Well I, I think in general, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, ESG in total, right? Whether it's the right topic now or is it overplayed? I mean, you hear both sides of this. And I can be honest, what I see everyone still doing is focusing on the same issues. They may not speak as much, but they are still, I haven't seen anybody pull back what their plans are on these topics. And to me, that's a really important point. And I also believe that um, it, this is the key part. Many of us focus on these not as uh, just social issues. They they live at that intersection of society and what's good for your company, right? Because I always feel all of us that are old, I don't mean like personally, but the companies, IBM's over 100 years, there's a lot of companies over 100 years. Um, when they are that old, they really do sense this thing that society gives you a license to operate and it can revoke it. And I think because of that, you naturally say, gee, as I got the community, my customers, my business partners, my customers, my shareholders, and of course you have to address shareholders. Um, it, like I always say, it's easy to write about it, black and white and type. I always lived in a gray world on this topic because I always was balancing and at any one moment, one was pleased more than another. But that's why I think I kind of go down that way because to your question, my observation is everyone I know is still very focused on the environment for the right reasons they want. You know, they focus on social for great workforces and to align with what their customers are and good governance is good governance. Yeah. I want to ask you one question about AI and then I've got one final one yeah. about the book that I'm eager to ask you. But on, you know, on AI, you obviously were very much at the forefront of bringing this to, you know, into the United States and integrating it into many companies. Um, here in Washington, a lot of the concern around artificial intelligence you know, is, is really around jobs? Is it going to take everybody's jobs? And then it's around, are there too many biases to really be using this technology uh, very broadly? And I, you know, I'm just curious to get your take. Are these the right concerns that lawmakers and regulators should be focused on? Or would you encourage the conversation to move elsewhere? Yeah, this is a great question. And it's, it's brought to the surface with ChatGPT, right? Because it's something that so many people could touch and feel. So it, it kind of has its moment of, of now coming into everyone's consciousness. And I have been talking about AI ethics, oh, Heather, for over a decade. And I'm like, why does no one want to talk about it? And finally, it's got its moment. And to me, this revolves not on a tech issue. And I'll come back to why is the issue jobs bias? Yes, all those things. But to me, the issue is trust in these technologies. And they're complex technologies. To think that you can have regulation that deals with broadly with the technology, I think is very difficult. I've been an advocate for things like precision regulation, meaning regulate its usage, not necessarily just the technology. You talk about AI in what you see right now, this la large language model AI being used in chat GPT. It will only be as smart as how it's trained. So, you know, that old saying, garbage in, you get garbage out. And 
all of us are going to react differently based on the kind of question that we ask it, depending how important it is in our life. I learned this with healthcare and AI, that you'll accept not answers being right all the time on questions not so important. When it comes to your health, even though a doctor may not be right all the time, you expect the technology to be right all the time. And so I think it's going to force companies, I feel really strongly, that you got to manage the upside of the technology along with its downside in parallel. Not once you introduce it and go, oh, there's a problem. Now let's go deal with it or put a regulation in. And what we could do right now, like I would have loved to seen when chat came out, another app, which I, which I think there are other, I know there are, I've read of other people working on it, that might have been an app when educators said, oh, kids can cheat on their tests, that there was an app that said, you know, I could put your paper in this and tell with some level of confidence if it was written by ChatGPT. I'd be managing the up and the down, very tiny little rudimentary example, but at the same time. And so I think what's right is that this will call into question now and finally get the attention to the ethics of this because it will matter how it's trained. It will matter where it's used. It will, it's like it's introduction. So if I'm a serious business, I'm gonna introduce it properly because the last thing I want is to break trust with my customers. And it really depends on you know, the kind of problems I'm solving with it and how it's trained. Um, great potential though. So my view on this, maybe my last word on it is, there's such great potential. I hate to see that derailed by us not now paying attention to what could be some of the downsides. And I think it'll finally be time. And I would regulate, I'd call it precision regulation, and I'd regulate its uses. Just like you and I are happy with, we use our face to open our phone, but we don't want to use our face for racial profiling, right? It's the usage then is what we start to regulate. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. And I'm happy to say there are some apps that teachers are using to check those essays. Yeah, uh, they start coming right out. Right, right yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so lastly, I wanted to ask, reading the book, one of the parts that made me chuckle and then made me gasp out loud is when you go back and talk about your early reviews in your early career. I think everyone you know, has been reviewed by bosses and colleagues and um, has things to learn uh, over time. But you know, yours, you have this really startling moment where someone tells you that maybe you should lose weight effectively to be more successful. I, I, you know, that was wildly inappropriate then. It would be even more so now. Um, but maybe reflect a little bit on that and then tell us what advice would you give you know, the 20-somethings if you had to go back and give yourself advice or, or certainly younger women coming up the ranks today. Yeah, I, I would, and I, I tell that story for a couple different reasons. It's actually a person that cared deeply for me. I knew the context of that. And what he was saying, he was saying, look, I'm just being honest with you of the world around you that I see, that look at all those people up in these big jobs, and I think you could do that one day. I believe in you, and I just worry something like this is gonna hold you back. Now, in the moment, your reaction, I, I, I guarantee you in the moment, I didn't go on a diet or anything. And I was, of course, a bit upset. I think I chuckled because I, I knew his heart was in the right place. And now we're talking the very early 80s. Um, but what it said to me, and it's something that I still do feel, you know, as, as a woman leader, what you do is magnified. And instead, the impact it had on me is how I always felt about that was, for one, it made me study harder. I always thought of knowledge as a shield. 
it would eventually become a very competitive advantage. But I always thought, God, if I'm going to be remembered, I better say, I better know what I'm talking about. Now, it would turn out to be a great asset for me as time would go on. But when you say, what would I say to someone now? Because what he said was wildly inappropriate, out of context then, and for certain now, right? But what I would say to people now, and if I could give them one piece of advice, um, it would be, you had a little picture of this when you started the thing, it would be really believe that growth and comfort never coexist. And so whether people say things uncomfortable to you, you have to assess it, you know, don't let it define you. You assess where it came from, what it meant. Um, but it was true for me as you read about it in jobs, right? I would always be so nervous to go into a new job. And it's finally my husband one day, you know, when I didn't accept a new job right away, he said to me, God, do you think a man would have acted that way? And he was exactly right. And it internalized a great point to me that growth and comfort will absolutely never coexist. And that I then became really good at accepting risk because it went, you know what? I am gonna learn something on the other side of this. Yes, it's gonna be hard, but wow, it's a little bit of what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And you do that over and over and you will be surprised at what you're capable of. And that would be my advice to young people today. I like that get a little bit more uncomfortable or comfortable with the uncomfortable, maybe. Um, Absolutely. Jenny Rometty, it is always a wonderful pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for joining us on Post Live today. Heather, thank you. Thank you, thank you for such great questions. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.